Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program of table talk with scholars, artists, and librarians about research and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very delighted to have with me today on the show three individuals who have contributed to the exhibition on view at the Francis Lehman Loeb Art Center here at Besser entitled Changing Forms, Metamorphosis in Myth, Art, and Nature, 1650 to 1700. The exhibition is on view at the center through December 19th this fall. And so first I'd like to welcome Elizabeth Nogrady, the Andrew W. Mellon Curator of Academic Programs here at Vassar and a Vassar graduate herself. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, thank you. Next is Laura Yeager Krasselt, also an alumna of our art history program here at Vassar. Laura is the curator of the Leiden Collection in New York. Hello, Laura. Hello, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And then also with us is Ronald D. Patkus, the Associate Director of the Libraries for Special Collections and Associate Professor of History on the Frederick Weyerhaeuser Chair here. Hello, Ron. Hello, Tom. Good to be with you. It's great to have you back, too. So all three of my guests have essays in the show's sumptuously illustrated catalog of the exhibition, which is obtainable at the Francis Lehman Loeb Center kiosk. First question, which is also maybe a, a sort of observation of mine. This is a small exhibition. It's in the focus gallery, after all. But it is an exhibition that was a long time in the making. Is that the case? Yes, absolutely. Lara was a visiting faculty member here in the arts department in mm -hmm. 2018 19. If I have that right, Lara. Mm -hmm. And um, I had thought for many years that it would be great to show some works from the Leiden collection at the Lobe because I knew that Tom Kaplan, owner of the Leiden collection, really had as part of the mission to use the collection as sort of a lending library for public institutions uh -huh. to enhance um, mm -hmm. the American public's understanding and appreciation of Dutch and Flemish art. So when Lara was here at a certain point, we just were sort of chatting, oh, could we do a project together? And we started to look for connections between the works in the Leiden collection and in the Loeb's own collection. And then the project sort of developed from there. Although of course, then the pandemic struck. So we hmm. bumped the show an entire year and had numerous conversations during, you know, utter lockdown and, and the months after that in terms of developing the catalog and all the details of the exhibition. So we did have quite a bit of extra time, although it was a very strange time. Um, and we certainly, between Ron and also our colleagues at some of the lending institutions, we had many Zoom meetings because we couldn't always visit to see uh, other, uh -huh. other objects we were considering for loan in person due to the pandemic. So it was drawn out and definitely a, a strange time to plan something, but also an opportunity to really delve into subject matter in a maybe sort of with slightly a slower pace, a slightly different way, because we were in the depth of the pandemic. So the show itself sort of metamorphized as you were putting it together, didn't it? I mean, <laughs> Bart, Bart Thurber makes that point in the introduction of the catalog, actually. So, um... Well, I think about anything about trying to put an exhibition together in this, the last two years, a year and a half, is all about being, I think, flexible and adaptable and kind of being able to pivot whether from including loans or even you know, applying for support and funding for the show and not yeah. always knowing what the programming would look like if uh -huh. we were able to meet in person or not. So I think we, on every single level from the research to the checklist to programming, we really were able to kind of pivot where we needed to, to make mm -hmm. things happen and bring it together. 
Since most of the works here are in either the Leiden collection or the Vassar collections here, was it necessary to get a lot of funding? And can you talk about the funding and who were your funders? Well, as it says in my title, I'm the Andrew W. Mellon Curator of Academic Programs. Mm-hmm. And some people know that Mellon Foundation at a certain point in time really worked to ingrain interdisciplinary programs and activities into campus art museums, including mm-hmm. Vassar's. And because there is such an interdisciplinary component to the show, and I think that was my intention, as that is sort of the the mandate and dictate of my job, that was a natural link to that support. But then also we sought outside funding and we had great partners in the grants office here on campus, and they helped us identify some other foundations for support. And the Netherlands America Foundation, which works again to promote the arts of the Netherlands in the U.S., they were great supporters. And then also the Gladys K. Delmas Foundation, which I'll just say uh, Delmas went to Vassar and has a number of works that donated from her collection to the Loeb. And that's just sort of a tangent, but I think there was a lot of interest in the project. I mean, once we were able to put the letters together, I was so pleased and thrilled with the support we we received. Well, it has the beauty of being very interdisciplinary in that it draws the sciences and the arts together and history of art. And also it draws on many collections, even here at Vassar. It draws on Ron's collection, of course. You know, we have many books in the show, which is quite wonderful. I'm always so pleased to see that. Also, there are scientific samples from the science museums here on campus. Yes. So there's paintings, drawings, prints, printed books, and then in terms of other collections, you may remember the Mark Dion cabinet that we mm-hmm. had installed in the in the lobby of the Art Center a few years ago. I really had a crash course in every, <laughs> almost every type of collection and just assortment of items across campus. And I, you know, filed that away. And so mm-hmm. we were able to, for this show, borrow some gorgeous specimens. Mary Ellen Cizak in biology, who's an entomologist herself, helped us choose some absolutely gorgeous moth and butterfly specimens for inclusion in the show and then also some beautiful red coral from the Vassar College Artifacts Project which was carefully dusted and beautifully presented in my opinion next to a, a drawing from the Loeb's collection and then we don't have the actual specimens but some photographs of plant specimens from Vassar's herbarium mm-hmm. tying the oak and linden specimens to the story of Philemon and Bossus in Ovid's Metamorphoses. So that was another collection on campus that we were able to highlight. And then, of course, our ultimate partner in in special collections. Uh Yeah, the show reminds me a bit of Cabinets of Curiosities in a way, which are a big part of the study of art and academic study in this period we're covering here. So it's very suitable, isn't it? That we yeah, that was certainly that. intentional. That was yeah. intentional. Yeah. So part of the delay, I think here, I mean, apart from the fact that COVID struck also maybe has to do with the fact that this is a really carefully thought out exhibition, I think from the get-go that takes its viewer into its subject matter in a deeper way than is often the case with many art exhibitions, which you can often just sort of stroll through and not have to spend much time with and get what you want out of them. And maybe this is the purpose of the focus gallery, actually, where you have the exhibition. So the exhibition itself was sort of active research in and of itself, wasn't it? And it's also a product of research, certainly as a kind of document substantiated in the catalog, it seems to me. Did you know you were drilling deeply into your subject matter here? I mean, was that intentional or did circumstances just sort of take you there? Well, I think in a lot of ways, sort of thoughts I have about that. One is that this is a huge topic. 
And I think this could have been an exhibition that was many galleries filled with objects that range across the whole 17th century. So actually the challenge for us was how do we focus it? And how do we have breath in the material, which we do, but that great depth that it doesn't feel as if we've just touched the surface superficially of all these different ideas. But I think, like you said, to give people a chance, you can go as many layers or deep as, as you'd like between the catalog and the show itself. But part of the motivation was then working from the collections themselves, between the Loeb's collection and the Leiden collection, right? That was the foundation in terms of the objects we had to work with. And for, in terms of the subject matter, Ovid and the metamorphosis, the mythological side of this, which is where everything springs forth in the study of art, of this sort of theme is usually focused in the early part of the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And that's been where a lot of the scholarship has really kind of developed over the years. The latter part of the 17th century, which this exhibition focuses on really circa 1650 and then really to to about 1700, early part of the 18th century, has basically received less attention over the years. So we wanted to kind of balance providing an introduction to the interest in metamorphosis. So that takes us to prints and drawings in the Loeb's collection. But then the Leiden collection has strength in paintings by artists who were working in the latter part of the century, these classicizing mythological paintings. So in a way we had these two goalposts of the beginning and the end, and then how do we bring these various threads together in an interesting way? Really interesting. So Ron, this is the second time I've spoken with you and Elizabeth this semester about exhibitions to which the library contributed objects. The first was the Dante exhibition, or should say is the Dante exhibition. It's still up, still on view in the library and the Loeb Center. And it seems to me to be a a really wonderful and happy trend, the involvement of the library and the Arts Center and, and vice versa. And I don't think it's just happening here at Vassar either. When I go to exhibitions anywhere at the Met, at the uh, Pompidou, I often find documents all over the place now where at one time you'd have just seen traditional works of art, but oftentimes there are things from the archives that come up. And we have um, many books. Of course, this is in part a print exhibition, which, you know, prints are often bound in books. But anyway, it seems to be a happy thing. Yeah, it's definitely a larger trend, Tom. I agree. Uh, We can see it in other institutions. And I'm really happy for the collaborations here at Vassar. It seems like at any given moment, there's actually a number of things in process. In fact, I kid you not, (laughs) just a few, about a half an hour ago, I got an email from another colleague in the Arts Center, Jessica, and she's working on an exhibit next year with artist books. Uh-huh. And so we have a number of them here that we'll be loaning to, for that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think there are complementary materials. Both collections are very strong, but in a presentation exhibition, it can really be strengthened by drawing on the resources in, you know, more than one institution. Yeah. And it's very fine that you're able to contribute to the catalogs because that adds a lot to it. And I'm always really pleased, honestly, around to see your essays in the catalog because it bends a little bit the kind of essay that you usually find in an exhibition catalog and that it adds something a little bit different to it. And it often 
contextualizes the, the show in a nice way. So, and all the okay, essays here are wonderful. Elizabeth. Yeah, the, the, the three of you have wonderful, you know, the, the thing seems completely worth doing just for the essays of the catalog. Of course, I'm a librarian, but, uh, you know, so anyway. Lara and Elizabeth get the credit for that because they were the ones who invited me to, to write the essay. But I do think, you know, although it deals with books, it does touch on art as well. And I think there was a complementary aspect there. Yeah. One thing that really comes through in the show is how popular Ovid's Metamorphoses was in book form in the late part of the 17th century. Uh-huh. And I think as art historians, or at least I'll speak for myself, I gravitated towards the more lavishly illustrated versions. And uh-huh. Ron really made the point to me to look at the many different formats, that that was really the primary thing to notice because one group of volumes could fit in your pocket. It's only a few inches large. It has no illustrations. The text is tiny. When you compare that to the larger scale and more um, richly illustrated ones, it's really interesting to see all the different formats and languages that were available for this text. And so I'm really grateful to Ron for to help us, us draw at that point and sort of looking beyond just like the, the pictures and uh, and appreciating, like I say, those different formats. Well, we're going to make one... you all bibliographers. Before <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing um, about books is they tell you a lot about the context. I mean, they're like doorways into the culture that produced them and that produced your works of art also. So when you bring books in, you bring that material culture in, in a big way, especially for showing the book as material object in these shows. Well, I think too, because we have, you know, these big paintings, which were, would, would have likely been commissions or for wealthy elite patrons, but then you have the other end of the spectrum, a book that you could have evolved you would have carried in your pocket. So I sort of love mm-hmm. how just being in the space of the show, yeah. even though we were thinking and talking about this and, you know, reading drafts of the essays along the way, actually being in the space and seeing these books alongside the paintings and the prints really hit home for me. Wow. I mean, this is the range of how incredibly popular Ovid was. These myths were in all these various forms. The examples that come from the Vassar Library and from other libraries of books are representative of some of the printing trends in the 17th century. But there are many more. I think I mentioned in my essay, I did a a search and there were like 100 or more editions of Ovid printed in the Netherlands during the 17th century. I'd love to do an exhibition showing the full, because <laughs> I think ours are representative and the trends are illustrated, but I'd love to see with more detail what some of those other editions yeah. are. So it shows on, to a great extent, Ovid's metamorphosis. It's at the center of what you're trying to do here. And you start out with an attempt to define metamorphosis, certainly in the catalog, to focus our attention on its meaning in this particular period. So my question is, is Netherlandish culture at this time in history in a period of change itself, in a sense? I mean, is part of the appeal of the idea of metamorphosis in these works of art, a consciousness in Dutch culture of the mutability of history and the appeal in popularity of Ovid sort of generally in book form and every other way? I think in a way, one of the dynamics that we try to draw out is you have the popularity of Ovid is really a consistent thread that goes, I mean, actually from the the 16th century, late 16th century, all the way through to the late 17th century. So that, in a way, is a constant. But when we contextualize this period of, you know, post-1650, really 1660s, 1670s, and 80s, it was a moment of great change in the Netherlands. And I think it's a period that a lot of people are not very familiar with. I mean, being a student of Dutch Mm -hmm. art, it wasn't something 
I ever spent much time um, learning about or thinking about. But in actuality, it's right at the end of the, the so-called Dutch Golden Age, as we all learned about it, when the types of paintings, the collectors, the audience for paintings were changing because of larger political and social and cultural changes. So that's the backdrop, I think, of everything that's, that's mm -hmm. going on, along with the constant of metamorphosis itself as a constant. I mean, it's something that we also draw out that, Elizabeth, you end your essay like this, right? Everything is always changing. And that's the only constant that we have. And so that becomes the larger framework for exploring these different issues. There was a phrase in the catalog, either Laura or Elizabeth used, for the cataclysmic change that was going on in Holland at this time. It was sort of a disastrous time. Yeah, so, I mean, Elizabeth, jump in, but this 1672 is known as uh, the, the, the romp year, or the uh -huh. year, romp year, year, a year of disaster, where you have sort of the, the Dutch, Franco, and, and English war going on, where the Netherlands was actually invaded. And so there was big changes brought on politically, but also just, I think, in the day-to-day -day lives of people were affected pretty significantly at that moment. And meanwhile, the art market was already contracting and then contracted in a very extreme way. And so you see a change in the trend of how the works of art then actually appeared. And you see more of these classicizing types of images, which again, is something we do draw out in the catalog that might get a little bit lost to the casual viewer to the exhibition. But it was a point we were trying to make about this late moment in the 17th century. The sort of Apollonian trend here toward classicizing, is that the other side of metamorphosis and that, you know, you've got an impulse toward order as opposed to fear of chaos or interest in chaos, the chaos of change. So you've got change happening in the culture, you've got a literature of change being promoted and looked at really carefully. But on the other hand, you have the rise of science and then you have the rise also of the idea that art needs rules and rules have to be developed in these treatises or being written about how to learn art. You don't talk about the teaching of art so much, which is sort of what it struck me, what you were working with, but it had to do with the learning of art, certainly, that there are rules for learning art um, that are being developed. Yes, yes, very much so. And it's on the one side, you have sort of the emergence of treatises on art, which you had this great gap from the beginning of the 17th century with Carl von Manders' Schilder book, which was the first Dutch treatise on art. And more or less, you wait till the very end of the century, with a few small exceptions in between, till you have Samuel von Hoogstraten, who is one of the main artists in the show, Gerard de la Ressa, and others that begin to put their thoughts down on paper to actually codify how one learns and makes art, but all to varying degrees, which is very telling to me about Samuel von Hoogstraten is how he organized his treatise. There's actually a brand new English translation of it, which was wonderful, it came just in time for the exhibition actually by Celeste Brusati, in that he organizes his treatise still by the muses, right? So it's still a sort of oh. mythological framework over the learning of art, whereas others like Doloresa or Willem Khoury are organizing it really in a more of a rational, systematic way. And that comes through in the early uh, academies of art, which are founded in the Netherlands. And they come much later than elsewhere in Europe, you know, mm -hmm. as in Italy and other places. 
So the show is about myth and art, but it's also about nature. So the question, I suppose, is how does nature and science at this period intersect with mythography and its depiction in art? Or I could ask, you know, just straight out, do art and myth have a role in the development of science, possibly? I would say the answer is yes. (laughs) Um, Again, because we were dealing with such a small space, we were really trying to stick to that term metamorphosis is Uh kind of what to build everything around. So in the exhibition, in terms of science, we really focus on biological metamorphosis in terms of insects. Mm -hmm. So there's some insect compendiums and we look at several representative examples and artists were definitely involved in this. This was of course before photography. So Mm -hmm. we see fine artists turning their attention to these proto-scientific treatises and producing absolutely gorgeous, but also very useful scientific illustrations. There's a couple of volumes by Johannes Hudart in Middleburg, who was trained as a fine artist, and then studied with the naked eye this these insect metamorphoses. And so there's just these stunning illustrations of the different stages of the life cycle of a butterfly, for example, that you Mm -hmm. can see in the exhibition that he hand colored himself. We had a visit again from an entomologist in the biology department where she brought the butterfly into the museum, which is sort of a no-no, but we made an exception. (laughs) Um, And you could see that the colors and patterns on the wings of the butterfly just looked exactly like what were illustrated in the text. And then we also have another study by Jan Sparmerdam, in which case he was using the microscope. And you can see the very detailed and blown up images of the insects, which is kind of a world unto itself as well, because we're seeing these things you can't see with the naked eye that really amazed people in the early modern period and kind of opened up a whole new world. And then the third insect study is Maria Sibylla um, Miriam's famous book from Suriname, where Mm -hmm. she traveled to South America to the Dutch colony there with her daughter and studied all of these insects, but also small animals and plant life in Suriname. And then went back to the Netherlands and illustrated Mm -hmm. a very famous book that had different types of publications. Some were uncolored Mm -hmm. prints, some were colored for different markets, which were then distributed. So those were some of the examples. But even as these proto-scientists and these artists are moving away from the classical ideas and these notions of myth that are still kind of intermingled in the Mm -hmm. sciences, I make the argument in the catalog in any event that myth is still kind of hanging on, whether they're using it as kind of a framing approach, the way Lara was just describing, or even in their imagery, they do continue to show this interest in these mythological images. And I'll say one final point on that is that knowing Ovid was part of being a well-educated person. So we have one portrait of Christian Hauchens in the exhibition, who was known among other things for the pendulum clock. And he was also an astronomer and he made a discovery about the moons of Saturn. And he wrote a coded anagram to friends and colleagues and correspondents using a line from Ovid, from a poem of Ovid's. So again, the sort of boundaries between these disciplines, as many people have noted, they're just not as firm as Mm -hmm. we may like to think today. So Ron, print culture has a lot to do with this intersection of art and science, doesn't it? And the development of scientific knowledge. Yeah, many of these works are a form that they appear in is in print. I actually think of another book, another Vassar book, which is Vassar's millionth volume, which was, maybe you remember, Tom, yeah. uh, Govard Bidloo's Anatomy, which appeared in the late 
17th century. That was chosen by another Dutch expert at Vassar, Susan Koretsky, mm -hmm. um, now retired from the art department. But we chose that as Vassar's millionth volume precisely because it was a work of science, but also a work of art. And what would be better for the millionth volume at a liberal arts college than a book that brings together the arts and the sciences. But it also is a beautiful book. It's a large book, a folio. And I think that illustrates how the world of print is intersecting with some of these, these other trends that you mentioned. Sometimes the only way that scientific knowledge can be codified and passed on is through an illustration, isn't it? So you can place something into text, but you need an illustration. Well, certainly say for some mathematical concepts, you know, you need a drawing to make it understandable. And it seemed to be the case with these descriptions of flora and fauna that people were, were making at this time. And it seems to me also, I keep coming across the names of women who were illustrating these books. And was this something that women ordinarily would gravitate to as artists in this period? Yes, certainly botanical illustration, mm -hmm. scientific illustration, those were considered sort of appropriate subjects for, for women. Mm -hmm. And we do have one fascinating sort of linchpin in some ways of the whole show is a portrait of Dina Margareta Debay, a wealthy woman from Dordrecht. And the portrait is by Willem von Mieris. And you can see that she is depicted in sort of luxurious dress in a kind of garden. We make an mm -hmm. argument. She's kind of a Diana figure, a goddess Diana figure. But nearby, there is also a small painting of a flower with a butterfly next to it. Mm -hmm. And this is from the Leiden Collection, who also owns the preparatory study, which does not include this element. Uh -huh. So at a certain point in time, whether it was the patron or the artist, someone chose to include this reference to her being an, a painter and an illustrator of this type of imagery. So there was certainly that connection to, to women. Yeah. And that's on the uh, cover of your catalog here, isn't it? That, yeah. That, and then we, yeah. on the back cover, you can see the detail. Just, oh, just you can. Okay. It. <laughs> yeah. I was looking for the butterfly and I just didn't see it at first, but now I see it very clearly. So yeah, really something. So you've got the actual butterfly painted and an image of a botanical print with the flowers on it that the butterfly seems to be attracted to. And you've got the artist all in the same. Not place. to mention that that work was painted in the exact same year that Marion's text was published in Amsterdam. Oh, was it? Oh, oh, oh. So it was definitely in the air and in the culture. So the big question, does this exhibition as an art historical endeavor add to our understanding of this period of the history of art or to 17th century history generally? <laughs> now, I know, you know, you're authors of the catalog and the exhibition. I can't do this so you can be humble about it, but it seems to me it does. I mean, as a work of scholarship, is there a contribution here? And what is it? I suppose that's the question. Well, I think in an important way, as I alluded to earlier, is how... Um, this later period of the, the 17th century in the Netherlands has often been overlooked. And that's sort of slowly changing um, in the last couple of years or in recent years as well. But I think that what we hope to do in a way was to be able to really add a new perspective and kind of expand how we look at and how we understand this period. And artists whom, because of Willem van Mures or Gottfried Schalken in the exhibition, classicizing artists have tended to be overlooked or like someone like Willem von Mures, that he was had these elite patrons. He was interested in well, painting this very meticulous, refined style, interested in myth, but was very far away from the kind of academic world. When in fact, something that I discuss in my essay too, is that 
he was a member of the then recently founded Leiden Drawing Academy. And he was looking at, he was working from, from life or Narchet Leiden, um, as it's known in Dutch. So really from the natural world, but also looking at the classicizing sculptures of antiquity, but also clearly very aware of developments that were happening in uh, you know, the scientific world. So to be able to maybe bring that more to the forefront um, and draw people's attention to that, of all of the rich things happening in the latter part of the century is one aspect mm. that I think we hope mm. to contribute. But Elizabeth, you can. Yeah, and also just there's certainly a lot of these themes in academic writing. Again, we're trying mm. to push it forward. This is such a well-studied period and mm. there are so many amazing scholars. The most you can hope is just, you know, to add a little bit to the conversation, but also bringing the objects together and trying to not just write about it or talk about it, uh-huh. but see how it actually looks when you bring it all together. I think that's another piece that I hope we can make a small contribution. Yeah, things speak, as Heidegger says. So another big question, does this exhibition and the notion of metamorphosis in it say anything to us about our own culture? Because we live in a world of changing forms, yes? Things that we thought were stable at one time, like concepts like gender are not so stable anymore, happily. But does it reflect, do you think the exhibition reflects on our own time in some way? I mean, was that a part of your intention with the exhibition? Well, I would say that the field, the study of 17th century Dutch art is undergoing major, major Mm -hmm. change right now in terms of this term golden age is essentially abandoned. This idea of realizing that colonialism, the slave trade is all underpinning all of the beautiful pictures that we've sort of in the field, we have not been critical enough of the things that happened to make those images possible. So we also were considering that as we put this exhibition together and with the Marian text, for example, she says very clearly that she talked to and took knowledge from enslaved peoples in Suriname, from indigenous people, and incorporated that in her text, which then circulated back to the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And again, these things have been written about in scholarship, but we tried to show it in the exhibition, which is challenging because it's more about an idea than an actual image necessarily. But really being able to look at these works and say, oh, these aren't just beautiful paintings, but there are all all these other things going on. So in terms of, again, the change in our own fields, we're trying to address some of those issues that maybe were not transparent enough in traditional museum exhibitions, but it's certainly being seen only more and more. And I think it'll continue in that direction. So I thought maybe we could just finish up here by having each of us talk about a favorite work in the show rather than go through every work ekphrastically. If that sounds like a good idea, um, I don't know if they'll map onto favorite tales from Ovid, which you know I have myself. But anyway, I thought maybe I, I could go first and we can have the same object if that's all right. So yeah. mine is Solomon Debray's large oil painting of Ulysses and Circe from about 1650 from our own collection, the Logue collection. So what strikes me about it, you know, looking at it carefully, A, the female figures are so delicately drawn and so positively drawn. The maids pouring Ulysses wine, Ulysses sitting at a table, Circe's standing in front of him. There's a sculpture in the shadows in the back of possibly Orpheus or some figure with a lyre. And then Ulysses is sitting at a table looking really smug, sort of mansplaying in front of them, not being attractively drawn at all. I don't think he doesn't look very heroic here. He looks like somebody sitting back on a subway train, all full of himself with his legs spread apart. But the scene depicts the moment when Circe is trying to transform Ulysses into a swine. But Mercury has given Ulysses an antidote to the formula here, which is being poured into his cup. 
And it has a couple of resonances for me. For one, there's supposed to be a transformation going on, but it isn't happening. He's just sitting there as a still, like a movie still, and stopping the movie in a way. It's, it's not working. Looking very smug about it as though there's something sort of stubborn about him and he's stopping something here. So there is that. And also he just is not depicted very positively. In fact, he has a lot in common with his own men that are depicted behind him, the swine. He is a kind of porcine individual, a farm animal person. In a way, he himself is. I just like the sort of undercurrents here. I'm not quite sure what the object is, but anybody have any thoughts about that painting? Well, one of the points that we tried to address was the challenge, um, but also the thrill for fine arts to depict scenes from the metamorphoses because they were working with static images. Uh So obviously you couldn't see the full transformation, yet they have these different approaches to show suspense or, you know, other aspects of the transformation. And I love this one because they're waiting, as you say, they're waiting and nothing's going to happen. Kind of a standoff. Yeah. But you feel that kind of anticipation, what's going to happen. So I think it's a very clever moment to choose. I also Uh, think those pigs have an amazing amount of personality. (laughs) Well, that's true. They do. And then there's the figure of Orpheus in the background. Circe does have some claim to being a, a musician, doesn't she? And also, as far back as the 12th century, medieval authors were casting the conflict between Circe and Ulysses as a choice that Ulysses has to make between rationality and pleasure or material comfort. And then this extends into the Renaissance, into the philosophical questioning of the desirability of the rational life per se. And perhaps it's complicated here because Ulysses comes off as already somewhat animal-like and not an emblem of the life of the mind. His antidote is given to him by Mercury, after all, god of commerce, and Circe is associated with knowledge derived from nature. And uh, I wonder, wasn't there a debate in artistic circles in this period about the value of knowledge? I think artists were still trying to sort of shed that artisan association, so they still, I would say across the board, you know, valued history painting in terms of subject matter and did want Mm -hmm. to appear learned and intellectual as opposed to to an artisan. Mm -hmm. Laura, I don't know if you have any other. Yeah, I think just sort of building on that, it's interesting that Samuel von Hoogstraten in his treatise, he actually calls the art of painting a science, right? Mm -hmm. One of the first sort of mentions of the arts of painting in that, that context in the Netherlands. So it's that artist striving to gain knowledge, to be this idea of the universal artist, that one not only needs to know the manual aspects of creating things, but to know the intellectual, the scientific anatomy, optic, all the different pieces of what it takes to, to be an artist. So anybody else have a favorite work in the show? Well, my favorite, of course, is going to be a book. <laughs> or book title, I'll choose the work that Elizabeth mentioned earlier on, that small three-volume set printed by the Elseviers in 1664. The Elseviers were a very prominent publishing family, which started in the previous century, but they were going strong in the middle of the 17th century. Even today, as you know, Tom, Elsevier is a very important business firm that uh, libraries have to contend with, especially as they're buying journals. But anyway, this is the same firm, same name. The reason I really like this three-volume work is because of its small format. Um, You can literally hold the books in your hand. They were very affordable. And this tells us that these books, this Latin edition of Ovid, you know, would have been intended 
for a wider audience. And that's reflecting something about the culture at the time. The editor of the volumes was also well-known, Heinzius. He's actually the son of a more famous editor. Daniel was the father and the, the son, the editor of this book was Nicholas. But that's worth noting in terms of the text as well. So there's a lot of things happening with those small little volumes. And though, as you said earlier, sometimes you might be inclined to walk by them. There's actually a lot happening there that ties into some of the key points of this exhibition in bibliographic form. Laura, do you have a favorite? It's a very hard question. I've been thinking about it. I haven't come up with an answer per se, but more so than a favorite is maybe works that in the Leiden collection that have not gotten a lot of attention or I've not thought about very much before or didn't know very much about before. And in the process of of working on the exhibition and, and writing the catalog, they've really shown themselves to me in interesting ways. And I've sort of come to appreciate them in a way I suppose have become my favorites. I would maybe just speak about the Stanley von Hoogstraten because that's a painting that is not one, perhaps when you first look at it, you know what's going on, that you know exactly what, that there's even a, a myth from Ovid being told um, or being depicted here by von Hoogstraten. But as you know more about the myth, about what von Hoogstraten was doing um, in this period of his life, it becomes quite extraordinary. So I should mention, too, that this painting has never before been shown in a museum exhibition or anywhere. It came from a private collection, has been in the Leiden collection. So this is an exciting opportunity to see it in person. And it is the only surviving mythological painting by von Hoogstraten that that we have today. Mm -hmm. So there's a few other mentions in archival documents uh, that he did paint mythological subjects, but this is all that we have. And it's fascinating for an artist who sought to be a universal painter, who was very much a a history painter, in some ways, part of his oeuvre, in the sense of depicting the mythologies, depicting history scenes, but one he didn't really turn to subject very often at all. So The painting depicts the story from Ovid of Salmachus and Hermaphroditus, where basically this beautiful young boy who here is shown really as an an adolescent, Hermaphroditus is traveling through the lands of Asia Minor and he comes to a clear pool water of water or stream to bathe. And he wants to just do this very peacefully uninterrupted but Salmachus, a nymph, is spying on him. And she tries to approach him. He refuses her advances. And so she says, okay, I'll kind of go away. And so she's retreated. And we see her tucked just to the far right side of the painting. She's peering over a tree branch where um, this beautiful kind of golden cloak or dress has been, been draped over the side of the edge. And Hermaphroditus is sort of love this pose that he's in where he's embracing himself. So not to slip into the water, but his toes are just, just dipping his toes into the cool, clear water beneath him. And he's grabbing onto this white underdress or undershirt that he has on. And there's, there's a little glow around him. He seems in some ways very innocent, almost sort of angelic. And there's a big landscape which stretches off behind him Uh, We see this winding road and trees and hills and a somewhat stormy sky. It's strangely positioned that the figures are off to the side. 
the landscape, which is something von Hochstraten himself would recommend, is divided into these different sections, sort of foreground, middle ground, background. And the quiet and idyllic character of the painting gives no indication of what's to come because it's actually a very violent story, a moment of transformation in which the nymph will soon really force herself upon hermaphroditus and she she had prayed to the gods that they could be united forever and her wish will come true and they become then united into the single being. But it's kind of a radical, violent encounter between these two figures. But von Hoogstraten doesn't tell us any of that, that he's chosen this moment in between, this moment of anticipation and done in this beautifully painted way, attention to light and color and fabrics. And what he's done here is really, he's read Ovid. Mm-hmm. You know, he recommended to, to other artists wow. that they should go back and read the text themselves, and as opposed to other painters who just look back to printed books, who look back to prints to depict the same stories over and over again. Here, von Hoogstraten has gone back, read the text himself, and then pulled out this moment into this very strange painting. But it's one that's kind of re- revealed itself to me the more that I've looked mm-hmm. at it and thought about it over the course of the exhibition. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> It is really striking. I mean, it, it jumps out at you in the show. So, And there are other depictions of this myth, aren't there? There are some in print form and, and some of the prints that you have that do show the transformation or they show you more than one instance in time. Exactly. And after. Yeah. Exactly. So you actually will often see sort of these sequential narrative moments. The, the two of them maybe in the foreground separated, but then in the background, you see the you know, sort of merging of these two into one yeah. being. So yeah. this is a very unusual depiction of the the myth. So Elizabeth, any favorites? I think I'll go back to that Willem von Mira's portrait that I mentioned earlier of Dino Margareta Dubai. I mean, it's so finely handled. It's just exquisite to look at and really spend time with and to see in person. And we have a comparison of it with a painting from a couple of decades earlier of Diana, the goddess Diana, Uh which may be a historiated portrait but it just is a great comparison with that work because to me, when you look at them together and see how he used essentially the same setting and the same costume, to me, it kind of gives that feeling of the goddess over the woman herself who's being of Dina Margareta Dubai. Um, So I love that element. And then it's one of those paintings, as much as before I worked on the show, I might've appreciated the technique and the sort of beauty of it. I probably wouldn't have put it on a list of favorites as someone who's studied in this field. I was interested Mm -hmm. in scenes of daily life and Rembrandt's depictions of the inner mind and emotion and how that would look. So sort of a an elite portrait wouldn't have held from late in the century, might not have held that much interest for me before working on this. But after studying the period more and seeing this undergirding of myth that isn't it both through the costume, but also the inclusion of the sea monster and the puto on the sculpture mm-hmm. and the fountain in the background. And there's a little scene of Bacchus on a stone plinth, kind of in a relief sculpture nearby. So you have these hints of myth, but then you also have the inclusion of the butterfly and flower painting that I mentioned earlier. When Lara first pointed that out to me, uh, sort of in the darkest days of the pandemic, it just blew my mind. I was, you know, I thought to myself, like, oh, this is really going to work, you know, connecting the different aspects of, mm-hmm. of the concept of metamorphosis. And then the fact that she's holding an orange, which is something that would have probably been from a Dutch colony and was mm-hmm. only able to be grown in the Netherlands recently due to technological advances in greenhouses and the sort of orangerie gardens. 
So the more I learned about this painting and about this period and these other comparisons, it just sort of blew open for me mm. in this really exciting way that doesn't happen that often where you just see something from a totally mm. different, you know, through new eyes, mm. um, something you thought was, let's face it, maybe a little boring or, you know, mm. oh, just a, just a fancy portrait. But I really think there's so much more going on here. Yeah, it does draw you in. It's a beautiful thing. The landscape in the back, too, is really wonderful. Dark, foreboding, kind of looks stormy also, way off in the distance. Also, on the table in front of her with the flowers and her painting are a couple of paintbrushes. And, you know, when you look back at the earlier painting of Diana, she's holding an arrow, a blooded arrow. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, with paintbrushes. You're not arrows. just a librarian. You do have Yeah, so there is some suggestion there. And I wondered about the orange. I was thinking about the other scenes of Pomona also in Ovid, um, uh, a bit anyway. Really interesting. So I urge everybody out there to come see this exhibition and the print exhibition, American Impressions exhibition that you walk through to get to the focus gallery. So I'd like to thank all three of you for visiting with us on the Library Cafe today to talk about the exhibition. On view until December 19th, it's called Changing Forms, Metamorphosis in Myth, Art, and Nature, 1650 to 1700. Thanks for coming on. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you.